All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor hath the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Father God, thank you for your word. We know it to be your word. This is not the creation of men, but the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy, perfect word of God. And so we approach it on bended knee. We approach it today humbly, asking for your help. 
We, Lord, we know, Lord, these are your, your words, and we don't want to uh, misuse them, misspeak them in any way. Use them in a way we ought not. So I pray today you'd fill me with your spirit and help me today, Lord, to preach well and rightly, accurately, truly. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. Help me to say anything I should. And I pray also for all of us, Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit that we might hear. Give us ears to hear today. And if this message is directed at any particular need in our lives, help us, Lord, to make the changes we need to make. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this portion of Scripture, I read a lot of Scripture this morning, and in this portion of Scripture, we see several accounts. We see, first of all, the account of the centurion and his servant in verses 1 through 10. Interestingly, this centurion, who would not, you would not expect him to be beloved by his people, by these people, but he was. He was beloved by the people of Capernaum, because as you'll notice in verse number 5, it says he had built them a synagogue. Now, those of us who have gone to the Holy Land have stood in that very synagogue. It's a fascinating place. It's one of the most uh, known-to-be-authentic places that we ever visit. You're standing in this synagogue knowing that this is, this is the synagogue discussed here, very possibly the one built by this particular centurion. And so we have that interesting story. We also have a story here in this passage of the raising of the widow of Nain's son in verses 11 through 16. Her son was dead, and the funeral procession is coming along. I think it's very interesting that Luke gives us the little detail that it was an open coffin service. Don't you think that's interesting? Why that detail is there, I don't know. But Luke was very detailed in his writing. But in any case, Jesus happens upon the scene and changed it from a time of mourning to a time of rejoicing and raises this young man to life. So in two days' time, we see two different things that have happened here. One was the healing of this servant, kind of at a distance, which is interesting in and of itself. And then we see the raising of this young man uh, from death. To life. Two miracles in two days' time. And the news of this, as along with all the other things that are going on at this time in, in Christ's ministry, is racing around the countryside. Verse number 17 says, This report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And the news spread, and it even reached into a prison where John the Baptist was imprisoned. He heard the news, not because he was able to see it. Clearly, that would not have been the case. And I don't think they had CNN or anything like that back then. He heard the news because he still had disciples. And those disciples were still serving him and ministering to him and tending him. And they apparently were sharing these accounts with him. And so he hears this news from his disciples. And he responds by sending two of those disciples back to Jesus. And when he sends him back... Sends them back. He sends them back with a question. And what I'd like to do for the few minutes that we have here yet this morning is to look at that question. And then I want to look at Jesus' answer. And then I want us to especially notice this morning a warning that Jesus had to say afterwards. So think first of all about the question. You can see that in verse number 19. Verse number 19, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look? For another. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? It's a very interesting question. I find it intriguing for several reasons. I find it intriguing, first of all, because of who asked it. Who asked it? This was John the Baptist. If this had come from any other person, 
Any other man, any other woman, we would not have scratched our head. We would not have thought it odd at all. We would have thought it perfectly normal for anybody looking at Jesus to question, are you the one, or should we look for another? It doesn't, it doesn't confuse at all. But this was John the Baptist. And I don't know about you, but it seems pretty incongruous to me that John the Baptist would be asking this question. You know, John was the one who was a fulfillment of prophecy himself. He was the forerunner. He was the messenger. Jesus said that in the verses that we read right after this. The messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. John was the one whose birth had been announced by an angel to Zacharias in the temple and also to Mary. John was the one who, while his mother Elizabeth was pregnant with him, recognized Jesus from the womb. And how could he not now recognize Jesus now at this point in his life? It's, 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 it's interesting. It's amazing. John was the one who had preached about the coming Messiah. And then as he watched Jesus walking toward him to be baptized one day, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He had no trouble recognizing him on that day. John's whole purpose in life was to point out the Messiah and prepare the way for him. And so to hear him now ask this question. Well, it makes you think, doesn't it? It makes you wonder. He would seem to be the least likely person to ask, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? I think the question is intriguing for another reason. It is intriguing because of who asked it. I think it's also intriguing because of why he asked it. Now, I suppose we could come up with all kinds of theories. The Bible doesn't tell us why he asked it. We have to look at this and theorize a little bit. And there have been some theories that have been put forth. Uh, three seem to bubble to the top uh, of everybody's list. Some theorized, for example, that he did it for his disciples' sake. That it wasn't about him. It was about them. That he wanted his disciples to hear Jesus answer. John had, since the time Jesus had begun his ministry, been trying to push people to Christ. That was his ministry. Even his own disciples. There had been a time... And times when his disciples had left and gone and followed Jesus. And he had not been upset with that. As a matter of fact, one time he famously said, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he understood that. And he was indeed doing that. And so the theory goes that here's John in prison. His disciples are still hanging around him. And he's thinking to himself, I've got to figure out a way to get these people to go and follow Jesus. This theory would suggest John was saying, guys, you've got to quit hanging around me here. Go ask Jesus this question. Listen to what he has to say. And my guess is you won't come back. That's one, that's one possible explanation of why he asked the question. I, I don't know if I buy that one or not. Another possible explanation that seems a little more likely to me is that he was confused about why Jesus uh, had not established the prophesied kingdom. In other words, he had a theological question. He was confused theologically. His understanding uh, didn't match up with what he was seeing in Jesus. He had expectations of what the Messiah was to be. And those expectations are clearly seen in what he had preached. Listen to some of his words. As a matter of fact, you could flip back a couple pages if you want to Luke chapter 3 and you can follow along. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 15, we read this. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what he preached. That's what he expected. That's what he thought was going to happen with the Messiah. But contrary to what John expected, Jesus was not showing himself to be mighty. Was he? He was not baptizing with fire. He didn't see that. Where was the winnowing fan in his hand? Where was the thorough cleansing of the threshing floor? Where was the burning of the chaff with unquenchable fire? Where was the kingdom? Where was the establishment of the rule of the Messiah? You see, instead of all those things that John expected, what he did see was a ragtag band of followers following Jesus around and doing good things, preaching, healing people. He saw all that, but he didn't see a kingdom. He didn't see judgment. He didn't see the mighty Messiah that he had preached about. And so according to this theory, John's problem was a theological one. He had expectations, and his expectations and his understanding did not jive with what he was hearing Jesus say and seeing Jesus do. And so he asked, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Of course, a third and perhaps most likely explanation, I think this is the most likely, is that he was just personally discouraged due to his situation. If we looked at the parallel account in Matthew, and we won't go there, but just for your own knowledge, if you want to go later and look, it's in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew uh, adds one little interesting detail there. He He makes it clear that this took place while John was in prison. Luke doesn't tell us that. But he does in Matthew. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And so here's John. He's languishing in prison. This man who was an outdoorsman, this man who had lived all of his life outdoors in the wild, is now stuck in a damn dungeon. And it's not much of a stretch, is it, for us to realize that this was, without doubt, a low point in John's life. Probably the lowest point. And maybe, maybe John knew that he was never coming out of that prison which he did not. And so, would it surprise us to think that this great man might be personally discouraged? Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on this, said it's not unusual for great spiritual leaders to have their days of doubt and uncertainty. Moses was ready to quit on one occasion. You look at that in Numbers chapter 11. Elijah was nearly suicidal in one occasion. You recall he sat down under a juniper tree and said, Lord, it's enough. Let me die. Discouraged. Jeremiah knew discouragement. Even Paul knew the meaning of despair in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so it's not unusual for us to believe that might have been the case here with John. You see, I think John asked this question because of theological confusion, but also I think there was this personal element to it. I think he didn't understand what was going on, and I think he was personally discouraged on top of that. He had, he had heard the prophecies that said the Messiah was going to set the prisoners free. He was in prison. He wasn't being set free. He was languishing, forgotten in a prison cell. And so he cried out, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? One commentator summed it up by saying, John hesitated because Jesus had not done what he expected. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's intriguing because of who asked it. It's intriguing because of why he asked it. And one other reason. It's also an intriguing question because we all need to ask it. We could look at it from that point of view, could we not? It's the most important of questions. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? 
We can talk all day long about religion, and there's a lot of people who love to talk about religion. There's so many discussion points that we could raise about religion, but the fact is there's only one question that matters. That's this one. Is he the coming one? What think ye of Christ? That's the only question that matters. It's the only question that determines where you're going to spend eternity, how you can answer that, whether or not you're going to be in heaven or you're going to be in hell. And so I'm not going to spend any time on that. I just toss it out for you to chew on for a little bit because I do think it's an intriguing question and one that we all need to ask. So John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? This is the question. Let's notice number two, the answer. The answer. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus answered not by really giving a verbal explanation. He didn't really explain. He gave a visual demonstration. You see that in verse number 21. He answered not in word, but in deed. The good works that were performed in that verse were all ones that had been specifically prophesied as being evidences of the Messiah. The Messiah would do these things. That's what the prophets had said. Isaiah chapter 35, for example, said, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Jesus was reminding John, these things have been prophesied. These are the things the Messiah is supposed to do. He was reminding him of Isaiah chapter 61, which one time before he had claimed to be true about him, Jesus had. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to counsel those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I think Jesus was reminding John that the prophecies that had been spoken regarding the one who was to come were being fulfilled in him. John's expectations of the coming Messiah weren't wrong. And the things that he had preached would indeed happen. But in Jesus' time. Not in John's. John needed to adjust his expectations to match the Master's plan. For Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And his plan was right and unfolding exactly as he wanted it to. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and the things you have heard. I wonder, what do you do when your expectations about Jesus are not met exactly the way you think they ought to be? What do you do when what you want from him is not what you seem to get from him? What do you do When you have plans and thoughts and hopes and understandings which don't seem to line up with your reality. See, Jesus seemed to be telling John, look at me, John. Look at what I have done. Look at what I am doing. Listen to what I have said. 
Listen to what I am saying. And I think that's the same answer any of us receive if we ask the same question at times like that. There may be times when in our present circumstances we don't see much activity from the Savior. There may be times when we will feel like we are alone in a prison cell and Jesus is not setting us free. There may be times when we'll have questions, maybe even wondering about some of the things we learned from the Bible. There may be times when we'll simply experience discouragement, crushing, personal, defeating, painful, overwhelming discouragement. And I think those are the times when we find ourselves, we relate with John those times, don't we? We find ourselves crying out, are you the one? Or do we look for another? And those are the times when I think we'll hear Jesus answer as he answered John, remember the things you had seen and heard. Brothers and sisters, we walk by faith and not by sight. But our faith is not a blind faith. It is based on fact. It is based on what Jesus has said. It is based on what Jesus has done. It is based on fact written and worked. And on those days, when our circumstances threaten to overwhelm us and our discouragement threatens to destroy us, oh, let us remember what he has done and what he is doing. Well, so we've seen the question, we've seen the answer. Let's notice one last thing. One last thing. It's in verses 22 and 23. I want us to notice the warning. The warning. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So Jesus' answer to John consisted of a reminder of what he was doing and had done, but it also consisted of this interesting statement, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What in the world does that mean? You know, I've read, I don't think I've ever preached this passage before, but I've read this many, many times, and I, I always come up short when I come to that. It's just an interesting statement, isn't it? What did Jesus mean by that? Blessed is he who is not offended at me. Well, the word translated offended there in our New King James Bible is a very interesting one. It translates a Greek word that has various nuances of meaning. It can mean to cease believing. It can mean to fall into sin. It can mean to take offense or be offended by some action. It can also refer to something we do to somebody else. It can refer to causing another to no longer believe or to fall into sin or causing another to stumble. But the most common meaning of the word and the meaning that we see, the way we see it used most often in the New Testament is simply to stumble or to cause to stumble. And so that being the case, I think the New International Version this time might have it the best. When the New International Version renders this verse, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, John, don't stumble over this. Don't trip over this. One man said John was in danger of being trapped because of his concern about what Jesus was not doing. He was stumbling over his Lord and his ministry, and Jesus gently told him to have faith, for his Lord knew what he was doing. Don't trip over this, John. Don't stumble. Don't trip just because I'm not doing what you expect. Don't trip when your theological expectations aren't met according to your timetable. Don't trip 
when it seems I'm spending my time on everybody else but you. Don't trip. Even if every plan you ever made, every hope for the future you ever had is dashed. Don't trip. Because everything is working out just as I had planned. Perfectly. And John, soon you'll see that and you will agree with me. I love what Timothy Keller says about prayer. I think it fits right here. Timothy Keller says, We can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. Isn't that good? And I think that's kind of what he was saying to John. And of course, that's the problem, isn't it? We don't know everything God knows. And sometimes we get confused. And we trip over it. And so Jesus' warning to John applies to us as well. At times like that, don't trip. Trust. Don't trip. Trust. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Well, that's all I've got for this this morning. But but what can we take away from this? How how can we sum this up? Is there a, a big idea here that we could conclude with? And I think it is simply this. I think we could take all this together kind of compact it down and make note of this there will be days when discouragement and circumstance makes us wonder are you the one or do we look for another and on those days especially on those days we need to look to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done we need to look to those past lives the things we have learned and held to in the past and on those days especially on those days. We need to be doubly careful not to let our wrong expectations cause us to trip or cause us to stumble. For discouragement will make us stumble unless we keep our eyes on Christ, on what he has done and what he has said.